Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, McKee begins his work at Jackson Hole. The number one issue is taper. No, not the economic taper. The taper of my waist after three meals at the Pioneer Grill. Guess what? It's not going to happen because we've gone virtual. McKee is virtual. And the distinguished Esther George is virtual. Let's listen. We uh, had hoped for an in-person meeting. We had planned that way, knowing in the back of our mind that that would be a function of how uh, the virus unfolded. And as we saw last week, risk levels went up. And in the interest of our guests, we pivoted to a virtual platform. So disappointed, but still uh, looking forward to a great conference. Uh, we've uh, got a great lineup of speakers and papers that I think are going to bring insight to an important topic. Well, you lead into an important question, the latest COVID spike. How do you think that is going to affect the economy? Well, I think it's a risk to the outlook. But what we've seen so far and what I hear from contacts in our region is the economy continues to grow at a strong rate. Consumers are still spending. Uh, the labor market is continuing to heal. We saw good job gains last month. And so the outlook, I think, remains a positive one. We will have to see what impact uh, this uh, flare-up in the virus might bring. So you could imagine that it might slow down some of the returns to the labor market, but I don't expect at this point that it will derail the economy as we saw last year when we first had to deal with uh, the virus. You think it slows down your timetable for when you might want to taper because you might want to wait and get more data? I think for me, as I look at the progress that the economy has made so far, it really does suggest that we've come to a point where we can begin to ease up on the amount of accommodation provided to the economy. That's different than suggesting that we have arrived at the objectives that we have in terms of full employment and uh, price stability. So I don't think that it changes my own calculus that it is time to begin to make those adjustments given the gains we've seen so far. Have you gained enough on the employment side, especially in the diversity area? Have we seen enough progress in terms of getting minority unemployment down? What's the labor market picture like? Well, clearly, we have not seen the labor market fully recover, and uh, there's still slack there when you look at millions of people that have not come back into the workforce, not yet uh, resumed working yet. And as you noted, uh, when you begin to drill down into who's recovering, who's not recovering, we know that there is uh, disproportionate uh, outcomes right now for Black and Hispanic workers. That, I think, is a function, again, of watching how the labor markets heal and how the economy recovers. And to the extent some of those contact intensive sectors can continue to bring jobs back on. And we saw that last month. We saw leisure and hospitality uh, come in uh, pretty well. If those kinds of gains can continue, 
at a healthy pace, then my expectation is we will continue to see uh, the impacts begin to narrow uh, across many dimensions of the labor market, and that would be a good sign. Is there a, any division on the open market committee about when to taper? Wall Street's making a lot out of the fact that some people think we should wait till the end of the year and some say we haven't seen enough progress. And then there are people like you and other colleagues who say uh, we've made enough progress to begin thinking about it. So this is a big committee, as you know, and one of its real strengths is diversity of views. It brings to looking at a common set of data. That's a healthy discussion. And um, you often see those differences emerge at the point that the economy is turning. So it's a, a healthy sign for the committee to begin to debate and deliberate on those issues as we judge when we've made progress toward the objectives that we've set out for the economy. Yeah, I'm just wondering if, if Wall Street's making too much of it, you know, the idea of whether you say something in September or November, is that cutting the policy too finely? I think what we've been focused on and you've seen is a commitment to communicate clearly, to make sure that uh, we are being transparent about the factors that are being considered uh, for that transition as it relates to asset purchases. And I think that's what's been happening. Um, the, the markets, the public has been hearing those communications. And of course, we're coming into a meeting in September where we will continue to talk about how the economy has unfolded and the timing for adjustments to those asset purchases. Interesting story today uh, about how Wall Street doesn't care as much about when you begin the taper as when you end it. Uh, what's your view on how fast you would want to get out of the QE business? So I think it's important to get started. And uh, the, the conditions of pace, <clears throat> timing of when we end, I think I'm open-minded to listening to uh, the debates around that. But I am less interested in deferring that decision. So I think it's important to really center on when we believe the progress in the economy is sufficient to start that process. And that's really where I'm focused in that sense. I think we should get started this year uh, so that we can begin to uh, pare back the amount of accommodation, watch to see how the economy unfolds after that and then down the road, be in a position to make decisions as the economy changes on what we need to do with our policy rate. I'm going to guess that you would agree with uh, Chairman Powell that uh, tapering is not tightening and that the two are not connected. But uh, the way traders see it, you at this point, because of what the chairman has said, aren't going to start tightening until you're done with tapering. So uh, there is a bit of a connection on the back end. And I'm wondering if you agree with the members of the committee who say, uh, we should get it done faster than we did last time. I think there's good arguments for that. Um, again, depending on how the economy unfolds. Uh, the arguments that uh, ending the asset purchases will give the committee some flexibility to judge the progress in the economy. But I don't think that's in any way a mechanical decision and one that we can lay out today, whether it's a certain amount of months, uh, the conditions really that have been laid out in the guidance from the committee has been that uh, we will have achieved maximum employment and price stability objectives 
uh, when that rate decision uh, is made. Whatever decision you make about the pace of tapering, uh, you're doing 120 billion a month right now. At what point would anybody even notice in the economy? Well, I'll be watching for that um, at the point that begins because it is a tremendous amount of accommodation going into the economy right now. And assuming communications uh, have been laid out and the committee's um, uh, response to how the economy is unfolding is clear, uh, you would expect the economy to be able to work through that. And that is my expectation that uh, with good communication, with clarity around the factors that we judge are pushing us toward our mandates, uh, that uh, that will all uh, work out in terms of the economy's ability to absorb that. The minutes of the last couple of meetings suggest that you've all basically agreed that you've essentially reached your mandate on the inflation side. So I'm wondering where Esther George, the inflation hawk is at this point. What do you think about the progress of inflation? Uh, and do you have some concerns that maybe it's not transitory? Well, I think watching the level of inflation right now certainly has gotten my attention. It's gotten the attention of many households and businesses in my region that frankly hadn't had to think about inflation for many years uh, in their decision-making. So it's not something to ignore by any means. Having said that, I do think that it is reasonable to assume that what we're seeing right now is coming from the combination of robust demand running up against supply constraints. And that of course is keeping upward pressure on prices. Over time, I would expect that to moderate. And that I think is a reasonable assumption to make. But that of course will depend on a variety of other factors. To what extent uh, do, does risk from the virus affect those supply chains? Will they become more persistent? Will it begin to build into people's expectations in a way that will cause us to have to rethink uh, that policy accommodation uh, different than we are today? You've always been on the lookout for inflation and one of the first to warn about the possibilities. So I'm wondering if you think we would have time or you would have time, since I don't have a vote, uh, you would have time to react if inflation proved not to be transitory and that you're not behind the curve. So it's hard to say today, given where we are in this recovery. Certainly the committee has the tools it needs to respond to inflation. That, of course, is always a function of understanding what's going on in the broader economy. And it, it's hard to judge, but I think uh, no one should question that the committee is committed, that I'm committed to a 2% inflation objective over the long run uh, for the economy. And we'll just have to see how this transition in the economy from um, a terrible pandemic shock to beginning to recover from that unfolds. I have to ask you one last question on a, a fiscal side, uh, leaving aside the merits and the partisan issues involved in the budget that was just passed by Congress. Do you worry that billions more, hundreds of billions more in uh, spending would be inflationary? So I think the question of fiscal spending is one that um, I'm gonna defer to fiscal policymakers uh, to judge. 
I think as a monetary policy uh, maker, I will be watching carefully any number of impacts to our economy, including fiscal spending, to understand how it might change the dynamics for how we achieve the objectives that Congress has given us. I actually have one more question, and that is you talked about the great guest lineup you have. Uh, there's one in particular that everybody wants to hear from. Uh, the minutes of the last meeting said no decisions were made. So I'm wondering what we should expect from the chairman. Is he going to be giving us guidance or opinion? Well, the chairman has not shared his remarks with me, so I could not honestly tell you what he'll be offering, but I'm sure it will be worth listening to. From the Midwest, Esther George and the Kansas City Fed and a decidedly different president of the Fed. She does not have a Ph.D. in economics, think James Bullard and many others who do, uh, but just a simply different path replacing Thomas Honig. start strong at this hour of surveillance with Russ Kosterich with BlackRock, Global Allocation Fund Portfolio uh, Manager, someone who really can synthesize the moment. Russ, why do I want to own bonds? I just don't get it. When I see where yields are, your short duration, I get that. But what is the weighting of bonds right now, or do you just run to dividend growth? You know, if you're talking about traditional treasury bonds, there are not a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, Obviously, the income is not there. And while we think yields are going to back up a little bit by year end, you're still getting a very paltry yield. The reason you held them for much of the last 10, 20 years was they act as a risk mitigant. They had a reliably negative correlation with stocks. They provided some downside protection in the portfolio. Tom, as you know, they're not doing that right now. Uh, we've seen that the correlation has been somewhere between positive and zero for much of the last six to nine months. And honestly, there are other ways to think about risk mitigation, whether it's being long the dollar, uh, whether it's using volatility as an asset class. So the short answer to your question is I think today, other than parts of the bond market, whether we're talking about EM debt or securitized that offer some yield, you own a lot less bonds than you used to. Russ, can equity markets continue to rally if treasury yields, 10-year treasury yields go up to 1.5%, 1.75% in short order? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, this this is the big question. But if you go back and you look at history, you've actually seen, you know, contrary to what a textbook would tell you, that multiples in real rates in the U.S. have tended to co-move together. And, and there's a simple reason for that. It's because when you see that modest rise in real yields, particularly from these you know absurdly low levels, it's coming in the context of a better economy, better earnings growth. And that's an environment where both equities and multiples tend to be solid. So I don't think the 10-year at 1.5.1617 is a big threat to the equity rally. If anything, I think the 10-year at 1.5.1617 tells you monetary policy is getting a bit more rational and the economy is solid and earnings growth is likely to remain strong. Russ, what does a policy mistake look like right now from the Fed? So there was an interesting HSBC note saying actually inflation is transitory, but it's the biggest danger at any, that now, that at any point since central banks became independent in the 1990s. You know, I think there is this question about, you know, inflation, I believe, is transitory. But as we've spoken about in the past, transitory can be a long time. Transitory can last six, nine, 12 months, given the inflationary pressures you have. So getting some clarity about tapering, getting some clarity about how long that's going to last. Uh, I think the Fed would do well 
to start soon, uh, give themselves the optionality mm -hmm. to be able to raise rates in late 2022 if inflation remains more persistent than they think that would be healthy at this point in the cycle. Russ, very quickly here, I've lost track, and I, I'm fascinated with what you think. What's the bet of the street right now? Are we way overweighted in equities? Are, we, are hedge funds loading the boat on equities? What's that tone in the malaise of August? It, it's, Tom, it's really interesting. We spend a lot of time on this, and you come to different conclusions. Uh, clearly, people have been buying stocks. The flows have been very strong, but there was a very long period, as we know, when flows were persistently negative in stocks and people were buying bonds. We look at other measures. We look at some of the surveys, uh, some of the retail surveys. They're not that bullish. So, look, I, I think people are long equities. It's not obvious that you have the extreme crowding that you had earlier in the year. And the reason for that is we've seen these violent rotations. You know, in most of 2020, when stocks re rebounded, it was all about secular growth. Then it moved to cyclicals. Yeah. Now it's tilted a, back, a little bit back towards growth. So while the markets continue to grind higher in this very steady fashion, you know, as you, as you well know, under the surface, you've had some very violent rotations, which in my opinion, have kept parts of the market from getting as crowded as they might be. Russ, how concerned are you that we saw the first decline in leverage in borrowed money uh, to buy stocks going back to the beginning of uh, the pandemic? That idea that suddenly people are reducing their riskiness right. or at least how uh, leveraged their speculative positions are. Honestly, I think it's healthy. Uh, I was probably a bit more concerned early in the year when leverage levels were, were extremely high, uh, when you had you know these enormous surges in volume for small and mid-cap names that were trading not on fundamentals but purely on momentum, when you saw all of the meme stocks uh, just erupting higher without any good reason. Uh, if anything, the market has actually calmed down a bit. And one of the really interesting things is if you look at, again, what's been working, uh, since February, since March, since yields peaked, you moved away from some of the more speculative parts of the market, and you've actually moved towards quality. You know, what's worked in the last six months has been companies that are profitable, that have consistent earnings with modest leverage. To me, that's a healthy sign that fundamentals right. are reasserting themselves. Russ, thank you so much. Russ Kostrich with us with BlackRock on a global allocation fund portfolio manager. This is the important conversation today of the emotion of what to do. You know the cliche, there's a wall of worry, and Daryl Kronk is esteemed and able to write about it at Wells Fargo. He is their chief investment officer. Daryl, I love, love, love your note because you go to the emotion of this. Forget about Fabozzi, forget about the textbooks, forget about all the fancy stuff. You say, here are the worries, you gotta fade these, you got to follow closely these, and you got to fear these. Let's start with fade. What do I fade here on the worries that I can ignore? Well, I think there's a good morning, Tom, first of all, and good morning, Lisa and Francine. So I think there's a number of them that you can actually fade. Uh, this one may be a little controversial, but I think from an economic and capital market standpoint, Delta is one of those. You can't fade it from a health standpoint, but I think you can fade it from the economy. Uh, just note the 20% up in the S&P, 51 new highs, um, that was just discussed, you know, th there's just there's some uh, violent rotation under the surface from growth to um, cyclicals to uh, bond proxies and back again. But beyond that, markets still move higher. 
I would watch the debt ceiling. I think you've got to fear the debt ceiling. Really? Um, yeah. I, I, September is going to be a white knuckle event. I mean, you've got a whole bunch of things going on there with the, the budget resolution. You've got perhaps the uh, certainly the debt ceiling and we're in, in extraordinary measures. You've got well, the reinstatement of Powell. Daryl, this um, is important. I want to underscore this. September is going to be a white knuckle month at a time when we have all bears basically blown out of the water and everyone trying to get more bullish on absolutely everything. Do you think that this is a problem <clears throat> setting up for sort of a, a perfect storm, if you will, in the next few weeks? We yeah, I do think it. I, I think it's going to be a lot of headlines, I guess is what I'd say. You've got you got the bipartisan infrastructure package. You got a three and a half trillion dollar spending budget legislation. You got a potential government shutdown. You got the debt ceiling, and you got the reappointment of uh, Fed Chair Powell. All of which has to get somehow resolved in progress in September. We know where the partisan politics are, so this is a real risk. You'll remember, you know, ten years ago this month was it was August 2011 when we downgraded the U.S. debt as a result of the standoff. So um, that had a 24% decline in consumer confidence and a 17% decline in the S&P. So yeah. look, I, th I think at the end, they do find some resolution, but it's not going to be without some of those white knuckle events. And I think it's going to create a September to remember out of Washington. So I like that September to remember, Daryl, how much <laughs> white knuckle events will come from currency volatility? And actually, how will that if we have a volatile dollar going into a Fed meeting, how much will that liven it up? Um, I, we actually think the dollar is is kind of in a near term peak. We think it's in a longer term kind of channel sideways trend, but a near term peak with some weakening here, which is part of the reason you're getting a little bit of that bullish sentiment. People are turning things back on. I think what's interesting here, though, is if you get under the surface, right, pay attention. I'm paying attention to high yield spreads and, and uh, credit OASs. They're up 50 basis points in the last six weeks, right? There's, they're quietly leaking mm -hmm. higher, right? So we need to pay attention yep. to that. You've got emer emerging markets are now negative year to date, and you've got copper and oil both off double digits from their previous highs. So there are some things we've got to pay attention to here. Daryl Kronk, thank you so much. Too short a visit. we got to do this longer next time. With Wells Fargo, their chief investment uh, officer. What you want to hear about is the equity market. This is Dow 35,405. Sam Stovall, a few years ago, was sitting on an acclaimed father's lap considering the Dow at 350 or whatever it was back then with CFRA and their chief investment strategist. Sam, we get heated mail when we talk to bulls. What's the level of your bullish belief right now? Uh, well, good morning, Tom, and thank you for that intro. Yeah, I never crushed my father's lap, but uh, good thing I haven't sat on it in a while. Uh, anyway, you know, the feeling is that the, the, the uh, path of least resistance continues to be higher. Even though we have seen a creeping up of the 10-year yield, uh, we're still seeing investors gravitating toward the growth side of the equation, right. uh, also looking toward real estate, et cetera. So uh, 4620 is our target. You have you have, or Lisa, please go ahead. I'm well, sorry, no, my fault. No, no. I mean, Sam, no, no worries. I, I, it's just you know, I got to jump in because you talk about 4,600. You sound like a bear. I mean, honestly, uh, this is a market where people can't get bullish enough. And are you also thinking 5,000, 6,000, 7,000, and projecting out incredible earnings and returns for the foreseeable future? 
Well, what's the old saying? You uh, you target a price, but not a date, or you prog- uh, forecast a date, but not a price. Uh, so y- yes, those numbers that you mentioned will be attained at some time down the road. But I think we also have to uh, make sure that we are risk mitigators at the same time. Uh, we've gone three times as long as we normally have between declines of 5% or more. I think that the market is vulnerable to some sort of an upset, whether it comes from from a, a policy misstep, whether it comes from geopolitical factors, et cetera. Uh, so I think that we really have to just not assume that uh, the sky is the limit. Uh, Sam, how do currencies actually play into some of your equity calls? Good morning, Francine. Well, currency is an important part. When we look at the technicals of the euro versus the U.S. dollar, uh, the weakening that has been experienced uh, over the, the intermediate term implies that investors do expect interest rates here in the U.S. to be picking up, possibly because of the Fed initiating their tapering in the fourth quarter of this year, possibly because of the continued improvement in economic activity and yeah. maybe even the peaking of the uh, Delta variant. Sam Stovall, you are acclaimed for understanding the vogue of the moment, the fad. Remember tick. Everybody, the world stopped like 14 times a day to look at the tick data. And there was this, the put call ratio and on. What's the fad right now where you say, get your radar up and be cautious? Wow. No pressure there, huh, Tom? No, none. Uh well, you know, I, I think uh, the, the fad really is uh, growth versus value. What kind of a rotation are we possibly going to be seeing? Right now, investors are chock full of growth stocks once again, uh, whether it's tech, consumer discretionary, communication services. Yep. And the real question is when or if, and I think it's more a when, not an if, that we see a rotation back into the value side of the equation because the economy is expected to be improving. We are likely to be seeing passage of one or both infrastructure packages, and we will start to see the 10-year yield creep up once again. Meanwhile, Jim Bianco was on Bloomberg Television yesterday, and he was talking about the Fed put that's sort of implied in markets. There is this belief in stock uh, investments that if there is a big drawdown, and big drawdown could be 5 to 10%, the Fed will step in. They will decelerate their tapering. They will become even more accommodative. Do you agree that there is sort of this implicit backstop baked into valuations where they are in equities right now. I, I think that could be a mistake to assume that the Fed will be stepping in should we see a 5 or even a 10% decline, because those are fairly natural in the stock market. And I think that if, however, we do start to see the stock market fall into a bear market territory and that there is an actual risk to our financial system, then by all means, the Fed will step in. But I don't really think mm-hmm. that the Fed is going to be stepping in You know, if we trip, fall, and just scrape right. our knee. Sam Stovall, we spoke the other day of the 10th anniversary of Steve Jobs resigning from Apple. Everybody, including me, got that wrong. Woe is me, Steve Jobs. He died tragically on October 5th, 10 years ago. And this guy, Tim Cook, he can't do it. And as you have chronicled, Apple to the moon. How do you know when to get off these stocks that just go and go and go and go? Well, you look at the fundamentals, you look at the technicals, and you listen to your analysts. Um, What's the old saying? Uh, 
the analysts do the work, but the investment strategists take the credit. Uh, so you know, I, I love I that. I hear what uh, Angelo Zeno says about Apple uh, and, and wait for his commentary from a fundamental perspective. What's he say? What's he say right now? Right now, still a, a favorable outlook for Apple. We have it ranked four stars. So there maybe you we go. like it, but we're not willing to bet our bonus on it. I, folks, so much of this is not making money. It's not losing money. And when I lecture on this and Stovall doesn't get a royalty, I say nothing helps you not lose money like the star system of CFRA. It is a great and beautiful thing. Mr. Stovall, go away. Thank you. That was a clinic. Thank you so much. Sam Stovall, uh, just I can't say enough about his work. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.